When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just a quick note to say the audio quality in some of the drops this week is uh, not great. You got some new equipment here in the studio and Gavin is still screwing up because he hasn't figured it out yet. We promise it'll be better soon. Our Gavin will soon have a new job recording spots for other podcasts no one listens to for iHeartRadio. Thanks for your patience. The use of language has altered since our arrival. It is currently laced with, shall I say, more colorful metaphors. Double dumbass on you, and so forth. You mean the profanity? Yes. That's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When your recruiting ad featured a homoerotic volleyball game, but you wouldn't even allow gay people to serve? What the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 363, Highway to the Reagan Zone edition of the show, where we talk about the movie Top Gun and how it made everyone in the 80s lie about being a fighter pilot. Stay tuned. What the hell were you thinking podcast is brought to you by the U.S. military. Who want to know? Are you poor? Stuck in a dead-end town with a dead-end job? Got no future? And willing to trade your body and possibly your life for a way out? Then you should join the U.S. military. We aren't at war right now. So what better time to join up? And we offer valuable skill training like assembling and disassembling automatic weapons or assembling and disassembling guided munitions, or even assembling and disassembling highly specific communications equipment used nowhere else but in the U.S. military. There's no better time to join up and serve than the few brief years between major wars, so enlist now in the U.S. military. You were in a 4G inverted dive with the MiG-28? Yes, ma'am. At what range? No, about two meters. Well, it's actually about one and a half, I think. It was one and a half. I've got a great Polaroid of it. And he's, he's right there. Must be one and a half. It was a nice picture. It was a nice picture. Lieutenant. What were you doing there? <clears throat> Communicating. Communicating. Keeping up foreign relations. That was, you know, giving him the bird. You know, the finger. Yes, I know the finger, Goose. I'm, I'm sorry. I hate it when it does that. I'm sorry. <laughs> One of the most common questions I was asked when I was in the Air Force was, Who let you in here? Which was a valid question and most often asked by a very angry sergeant who was sick of my shit, to which I would be forced to reply, A recruiter with a very low standard, Staff Sergeant. And we would laugh and laugh and laugh. But the other question most commonly asked was, uh, What kind of plane you fly? To which the answer depended strongly on who asked me the question. 
For example, if it was, say, an older woman or a gentleman who was about to thank me for my service, I'd generally let them know that I didn't actually fly but was a police officer for the Air Force, and they would thank me for my service, and we would laugh and laugh and laugh. If, however, that question was asked by, say, a, a bartender who might potentially offer me a free drink or a woman who might potentially want to have sex with me, I would answer, well, I did fly an F-15. But, you know, now I'm actually an instructor pilot in the Air Force's version of the Top Gun School. So these days I fly a Soviet MiG that a vector had flown into Germany in the mid-80s. But, uh, you know, that's not that impressive. Say, can I buy you a drink? You are a big fat liar. Of course I was. I was trying to get laid. I love to tell you that this fly was always a surefire thing for getting tone locked for the old moisture missile. Too close for missiles, Goose. I'm switching to guns. But, uh, never worked a single time. There are reasons for this. I mean, I didn't really have the cocksure panache of a real fighter pilot. Couldn't answer some pretty simple questions any pilot could reasonably expect it to, and, uh, I was kind of, uh... Also, you're fat! Well, I wouldn't use the word fat, but I was definitely a larger person than most people reasonably assume would fit into the rather confined space of a single-seat fighter cockpit. But the biggest reason it never worked is that no fighter pilot who ever walked the face of the earth had to be asked to inform you that they were, in fact, a fighter pilot, what kind of plane they flew, and then show you the model of expensive sports car that they drove on the regular. To the facts of the case, and they are undisputed. And look, I wasn't the only one who lied like this. Almost every young enlisted male of the United States Air Force in the late 80s or early 90s would at least imply, if not outright lie, about being a fighter pilot in the vain hope they might have sex based on the lie for a very simple reason. A recent movie had made pilots, and fighter pilots in particular, very, very fuckable. Top Gun had just come out. And it made America very, very horny for all kinds of things but mostly horny for war. Of course, I'm talking about the 1986 movie that made Tom Cruise, who was at the time a moderately successful Scientologist, into the hottest man in America, and also made America remember that our collective dicks were huge and permanently hard for big throbbing jets. Top Gun. But before I get to the movie, I gotta talk about America itself in the 1980s. Is that all you ever think about? No, sometimes I think about America in the mid-70s. This is a podcast. It has a theme, y'all. What I specifically want to talk about is how America was feeling itself in the mid-80s after a decade of painful economics, embarrassing political scandals, abject failure in war, and roiling social chains. America was in a mood, and one guy came along and said to us, you know what? Fuck all this shit. You guys are Americans. You're fucking awesome. I mean, not all of you, but the white folks. You guys are awesome. And you should feel really fucking great about being Americans. You all know who I'm talking about. Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Ross. <laughs> oh, if only. No, sadly, I'm talking about Ronald Reagan. Him again. Yeah, him again. One of the Gipper's biggest strategies to impress the muddled masses of middle America was to give us back our military confidence so badly shaken after Vietnam. Things started out pretty badly when Ronnie sent the Marines into Beirut, Lebanon to, I guess, stabilize shit after the Israelis went in and fucked shit up. This resulted in a poorly defined mission taking place in the most complicated of situations and ended when terrorists drove a truck bomb into the Marine garrisons and killed 241 Marines. In response to this, 
Reagan bravely pulled the Marines out. Now, he had to make up for this failure and make up for it quick. So Ronnie decided to start a smaller, closer war literally two days later by invading a tiny Caribbean island with no military to speak of. Why would he do that? Why, indeed. Ah, the ostensible reason was to rescue American medical students that were not being threatened by the government of the said island, but maybe could be possibly threatened by them at some unspecified time in the future. So we launched Operation Urgent Fury, invading the island of Grenada with 7,000 troops, a whole goddamn aircraft carriers with F-14 Tomcats and everything against, again, a government that had not threatened any Americans, had no real militaries, and just a smattering of Cuban, Soviet, and East German troops who were there, of all things, to uh, build an airport. How many brave Achilles? Uh, around two of them, 200 of them could generously be considered combat troops if you considered combat engineers combat troops. Now, as you can imagine... America won. I mean, it still cost American, 19 American lives and over 100 American wounded and 60 or so deaths among the enemy. But the students, who again, weren't held hostage or had actually been threatened, they were rescued and America felt like a man again. This resulted in two things. People stopped thinking about Beirut and an inadvertently hilarious Clint Eastwood movie about three years later. We're going to war, man. The island of Grenada to assist in rescuing American citizens there. Get on your feet, Highway! With all due respect, sir, you're beginning to bore the hell out of me. Clint Eastwood, Heartbreak Ridge. Because over in Hollywood, the movies and shakers were taking the rectal temperature of the hoi polloi, and they were all about America flexing our military muscle again. If there's one thing Hollywood does better than anything else, it's, uh... Money, sex, drugs, and action. Okay, and also, in this case, it's about making movies that kept Americans too messed for blowing up brown people and all their shit. So it was that Hollywood mega-producer Jerry Bruckheimer and his partner Don Simpson began working up a little movie based on a 1983 article they read in California Magazine by a cat named Ehud Yone called Top Guns about the Naval Fighter Weapons School in Miramar, California, known by the Navy as Top Gun. I'm really, really going to try hard not to play that every time I say Top Gun. The article opens, quote, At Mach 2 and 40,000 feet over California, it's always high noon. Oogie and Possum have a theory about hops. That's air combat maneuvers. The good ones always start out good, Yogi says, so the only thing to do is ride them through and try not to screw up. They're holding this thought as they blast off the oil-stained strip in their F-14 Tomcat and head out to hassle bogeys, enemy planes, off the coast of Ensenada. The pre-flight brief was short and to the point. The plane was ready, the takeoff smooth, a great beginning for a great hop. 
Even the weather is great, and they're floating in their glass bubble through a regulation Southern California blue-on-blue crystal morning. Clear skies over clear seas with white curls of foam swirling around La Jolla below. They float past Mission Bay in North Island. Then Possum calls out a new heading, and Yogi hangs left, and they're making straight for today's action, unquote. The article goes on as some of the most purple prose I've ever read to describe the work of, quote, Lieutenant Alex Yogi Heronakis and Dave Possum Cully. They're what naval lingo calls a crew or an F-14 team, unquote. It goes on to lay very thick the dangers and dramas of being Navy fighter pilots, mixing quotes like this, quote, It's like in the old days, says Commander Jack Gringo Snyder, leader of the wolf pack when one knight from each side would come out and they joust one on a white horse one on a black horse tall and wiry which comes from doing 200 push-ups and 100 sit-ups a day in preparation for the joust <laughs> look i'm not i'm not i'm not editorializing this is what was in the article it's linked in the show notes it moves on with dramatic descriptions of dog fights above the pacific the dedication to their craft in the face of every kind of distraction. Quote, It's Wednesday night happy hour, and the small, noisy room is packed with pumped-up fighter jocks. There's a lively trade at the bar, mostly in light beer. But out of this crowd of 50 or so men, no more than three are looking at the nearly new dancers. With raw sex waving right in front of their eyes, these supremely healthy young males are standing around in twos and threes and talking about the hop. Unquote. Oh, and all the article is an extremely entertaining hagiography and pretty easy to see how Bruckheimer and Simpson saw in this thing the bones of a movie that would go on to make so very, very much money. The real coup for the movie came when they approached the Navy asking for its cooperation in filming it. The producers knew that if they could get real footage of American jets doing cool shit, the American moviegoer would cream in their jeans. And the Navy, seeing a chance to make some really cool propaganda, jumped at the chance with just a few caveats. From a Time Magazine article in 1986, quote, But there's a catch. Before a producer receives military assistance from a TV or movie project, the screenplay is reviewed by officials at the Department of Defense and by each of the services involved. The Pentagon ends up rejecting many of the projects that come, that come its way on the grounds that they may distort military life and situations. An officer and a gentleman, which like Top Gun dealt with naval aviation training, was turned down because of its rough language and steamy sex and to the military mind an inaccurate view of boot camp. The Pentagon said no to war games because the military condemns that a teenager computer hacker could never crack the U.S. strategic defense system. Even Rambo's lone wolf heroics would have failed to pass muster despite later praise from President Reagan. The Pentagon guidelines do not condone activities by individuals which are properly the actions of the U.S. government, unquote. Yes, because heaven forbid the military be shown in a negative light. I mean, dropping napalm on innocent women and children is fine, but no one should imagine for one second that people should believe that there's indiscriminate sex going on by our nation's brave warriors. Folks, I spent a decade in the military, and I hate to break this to you, but uh, you know that people in the military... Uh, We've had sex a lot. And this may come as an even bigger shock, but... Uh, we use a lot more profanity. 
than like 85 civilians combined, even if they're like construction workers or oil riggers. Do you think I always use this many cuss words? Fuck no, man. I learned that shit in the military. There was sex and drinking, profanity and violence all the time in the military and the Pentagon, a building full of people who have fucked the militaries harder and rawer than anyone ever has and that they would deign to pass a moral judgment of a movie script would be laughable if it weren't true. But Top Gun was just the kind of movie the Pentagon loved. Pure masturbatory mill prop, again from time. Quote, the high-flying hardware turns Top Gun into a 110-minute commercial for the Navy. And it was the Navy's cooperation that put the planes in the picture. The producers paid the military $1.8 million for the use of Miramar Naval Air Station near San Diego. Four aircraft carriers and two dozen F-14 Comcats, F-5 Tigers, and A-4 Skyhawks. Some flown by real-life Top Gun pilots. Its glorified portrayal of Navy life spurred theater owners in such cities as Los Angeles and Detroit to ask the Navy to set up recruiting exhibits outside the cinemas where Top Gun was played to sign up young moviegoers intoxicated with a Hollywood fantasy. Hey, why don't you join the service? Join the fucking service. Join up and die. How do you expect to keep the country free if you won't die? I'm dead. I died in World War II. I'm fucking dead. Can you say that? Come on, join up and die. And did it work? Of course it fucking worked. From a 1986 article in the LA Times by Mark F.J., quote, Navy recruiting officials say they didn't keep track of the operation's success, but they, they've noticed more inquiries than usual about Naval Aviation Officer Candidate programs since the movie's release. They don't think it's a coincidence. Two groups I can identify as having increased interest are the individuals who applied in the past and returned down or dropped out of aviation officer training school and individuals who are approaching the maximum age limit to apply, said Lieutenant Ray Gray, head of the officer programs department in Los Angeles. There seems to have been a big rush in those categories that I have to attribute to the movie. I've asked several of these individuals if they've seen the movie and it's why they came down to talk to us again and they've said yes. On the other end of the spectrum, we've seen a general increase in the young men who don't yet qualify for the program, and I have to attribute that to Top Gun also, unquote. After Top Gun, you simply could not make a movie about America's war machine without the support of the Pentagon. I mean, well, you, you couldn't make a war movie people wanted to see, at least. Uh, they, they got hooked on that realism because of the real Navy planes and real Navy fighters and flyers doing real shit in Top Gun. And if you didn't have that, you ended up with, like, Iron Eagle made with the help of the Israeli Air Force. And that movie was so bad that you can get in a fight today with an Air Force fighter jock if you ask him if his job is anything like Iron Eagle. What the fuck did you just say? And look, the Pentagon would use this power very blatantly, telling Variety in 1994, quote, oh, the main criteria we use is how could the proposed production benefit the military? Could it help in recruiting? And is this in sync with present policy, unquote. Look, everyone knew Top Gun was high-grade heroin aganda for Reagan's vision of America and the military's view of it itself, but that never stopped them. Tom Cruise told Playboy that I found the art, the uh, snippet from the interview via Gizmodo in 1990, quote, Okay, some people felt the Top Gun was a right-wing film to promote the Navy, and a lot of kids loved it. But I want the kids to know that that's not the way war is, like you would know, Tom, and that Top Gun was just an amusement park ride, a 
fun film with a PG-13 rating that was not supposed to be reality. That's why I didn't go on and make Top Gun 2, 3, 4, and 5. That would have been irresponsible. Top Gun is a joyride and shouldn't be looked at beyond that. Born, he's referring to Born on the 4th of July, is about real people and real events. Top Gun should be looked at like going to Space Mountain. It's a simple fairy tale, unquote. Oh, so that's why you didn't do sequels, Tom, because it would have been inappropriate. I wonder what changed. Has the cost of auditing gone up, or did L. Ron, a whole new tranche of L. Ron Hubbard books suddenly get discovered? Tell him you're a Scientologist or something. I'd like to tell you that a young Dave did not fall for the blatant bullshit that was Top Gun, but come on. I was 17 years old. I was already enlisted in the Air Force and waiting to go to basic training. I was the child of good Reagan Republicans, one of whom was active duty Air Force, so of course I ate that shit right up. I was the goddamn target demographic and just barely smart enough to know that my life wasn't going to be like that in the military, but dumb enough to get pumped up by Kenny Loggins. Um, danger zone? You know, you should be proud of me that I waited this long to start using Archer Drops. And I was hardly alone because by 86, it was becoming increasingly clear that the Soviet Union was teetering on the edge of collapse. The Chernobyl incident had shown the great Russian bear wasn't exactly that great. And the feeling was if even if they had the balls to start some shit with the United States, our fucking flyboy hotshots would whip their dirty rusky asses right out of the sky like goose and mav. Why, their nukes probably wouldn't even launch it if they tried. We wish a motherfucker would try. Then they would real quick find themselves in the... Call Kenny Loggins, because you're in the danger zone. <sighs> okay, I'm done with Archer, I promise. If the Ruskies were going down, that meant that America was now the head motherfucker in charge, just like Ron had promised when we elected him, twice. The economy was booming. We'd spent billions on credit, mind you, to build up the military, and that old malaise seemed to vanish like a fart in a stiff breeze. Now, it would take another five years before we got our real Top Gun moment when Iraq invaded Kuwait, and we got to watch a lower quality, but infinitely more exciting videos of planes blowing up shit for real, because people died. Look, they're gonna kill that guy, isn't that great? All the Hollywood magic in the world can't give you the kind of chub you get when a million dollars of American money thrives through the window of a school or a hospital and kills a bunch of brown people. That's just the kind of rush Reagan really promised. A hop got advertised and the Gulf War delivered. I do love America. Well, I guess I did back then anyway, mostly because the commercials for America were really, really good and Top Gun was the best of the lot. Now look. I haven't really talked about the movie itself because I'm not a movie critic. I'm a social critic. And you've seen the movie. It's entertaining in the same unbelievable way that a Marvel movie is today. And I've not mentioned the most common joke about it. You know, how it's very gay, uber gay. Because that's been done to death. But also, and this is the last surprising thing I'm going to tell you about the military today. There was... And I assume still is a lot of homoeroticism in the military. Back then, it was petty cruelty expressed in any number of vicious hazing rituals, the kind of thing that wouldn't look out of place at the Folsom Street Fair if it was done in consent and love, but in the military, 
They were just pure sadism. A sweaty, glistening volleyball game by shirtless hunks that radiated hot gay sex so brightly it set off missile warnings in Moscow. That's hot. Was pure vanilla Hollywood fantasy compared to, say, I don't know, being led down a hall in your tidy whities on your hands and knees by a chain connected to a heavy dog collar while a line of jeering, nearly naked young men howled and whipped your ass with a leather dog leash, calling you bitch and forcing you to sit up and beg for them to stop. Sorry that happened to you. To me? Oh, n no. No, 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 nothing like that ever happened to me. It happened to some guy I heard about a long time ago, one time. So, no. The homoeroticism in Top Gun didn't even occur to me as odd until years later. But I will say the irony of it, when you could literally be court-martialed and dishonorably discharged for being gay, is just the last dollop on the turd pile that was the environment of the time. Now, I'm mildly curious now to see the modern take on Top Gun and how the Pentagon fused its modern brand of propaganda into the film. I'm even more curious to see how Hollywood bent over backwards to make sure China would not infer in any way that they were the bad guys in the movie, particularly in light of the universal consensus that the next time American planes take to the sky against a pure adversary, it will almost certainly be against China or a Chinese proxy state, since Russia has shown itself to be just as inept as it was when it was trying to cover up um, and correct a massive nuclear meltdown in the Ukraine by trying to cover up and correct a massive military meltdown in the Ukraine. Because as much as the producers of Top Gun 2 geriatric boogaloo needed the Pentagon to make the movie, they want the millions from the Chinese box office any even more. Because capitalism will always win over patriotism. It's the American way. You're goddamn right it is. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. Now, I will not be heading out to theaters to watch the new Top Gun because, honestly, I'm old and I have to pee a lot. And being able to hit pause, refill my drink, and take a whiz means a lot more than being able to watch a shitty movie acting and thinly plotted scripts on a bigger screen. Before, even before the pandemic, I was done with movie theaters. I get everything I need right here in the studio. And if I want someone to talk during the movie and ruin it for me, well, that's why I allow Gavin to watch them with me. Speaking of ruining everything, rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. It helps people find us and discover that we can ruin anything. Even the hot, sexy volleyball scene in Top Gun, because now you are only going to think of me and my tidy whities getting my ass whipped with a dog leash. Sorry about that. If you would like to help me erase the memory of that traumatic experience, kick us a buck at patreon.com slash what the hell podcast and together we can drink the pain away. Do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing. That way he will not show up in the studio with a dog collar to haze me like we he did when we joined the network. And so for me, Dave, revving up your engine, listening to her howl and roar, metal under tension, begging you to touch and go. Bledsoe, producer, 
You'll never say hello to you until you get it on a red line overload. That doesn't make sense in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Gavin and all the fictional flyboys on the show, we want to say... Who's your big stud? That's me, honey. Take me to bed or lose me forever. Show me the way home, honey. And we'll see you all next week. Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What the Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Rhyme in Danger Zone with Danger Zone.